The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Ty Hickey is back with us. You may remember he did a great culture club for us about a year ago, but as it happens, he now has a book out called A Portrait of the Piss Artist as a Young Man. Ty, thank you very much for joining us. That title is accurate, I think, isn't it? Well, it's very... <laughs> it's profoundly accurate. <laughs> no false advertising on that particular one. No, 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 no. What age were you when you realised you had a drink problem? 18. I'd say, like, when I was doing my leaving cert, I stopped drinking because I knew if I drank during the leaving, I wouldn't be able to do my exams, you know, because even then I was always a binge drinker, but I wasn't sure when I'd be able to stop when I started. It's amazing that the leaving cert was the one thing that actually persuaded, because as the book points out, there were times when you were due to be doing television, when you were actually missing in action, watching what you should have been doing on television, along with your friends with whom you were pissed. Yeah. And many other occasions, like going to Edinburgh Comedy Festival, breakthrough potential for you. Yeah. And you go in the piss instead of actually turning up for your gigs. I definitely had some modicum of control in my teenage years and early 20s. It just started to slowly kind of erode, I suppose. Plus, Edinburgh was like the freedom because I was away from Cork for the first time. I was doing a show, no parents, no one to keep an eye on me and uh, just went absolutely bananas. But in my head, again, I was having a great time, you know, because like for so much of your drinking as well, and this is hopefully something that comes across in the book, that I wasn't going to make it this like really serious piece of like drink is so bad. Like drink is amazing for as long as it works. Even when you're an alcoholic, the problem is just when it stops working and you have to figure out why you were drinking your head off in the first place. Well, I'd say about things that you missed as well. I think what's also very moving is when your father died, the guilt that you had because you were supposed to be out fishing with him, but instead you were drinking. Yeah, I carried that for many years because like, I just looked up to him so much. He was such... Yeah, even yeah, even just talking about him now, he's just somebody that I just totally respected. You know, He was like an ordinary man but he was extraordinary to me he just had life figured out he was very naturally altruistic he'd do things for other people without looking for attention which is something I struggle with um, and he just had like one simple request for me the night before I, b- before he passed away which was like you know just come home early tonight like don't worry your mother simple thing I mean I would have heard it a million times but it just happened to be in a night where yet again I kind of didn't and it's funny with my dad he drank but he always was there for his family so very young Uh, I got the idea that there was something morally uh, wrong with me that I couldn't seem to do what... Because, you know, like, everyone drinks. Like, you know, I was talking to a friend about it earlier. Everyone drinks, so what's the difference between me and everyone? I think in Ireland, it's thought of that there's still a little bit... There's something kind of morally defunct about the alcoholic. And from a young age, as, as in, like, in my late teenage years and early 20s, I was aware that I couldn't function like my father, and that made me ashamed. And we'll come back to alcoholism and its root causes in just a little while. But, well, if your father was a relatively straightforward man, I think it's fair to say your mother wasn't a straightforward woman. No. Um, Yeah, I feel like I, without being too reductive, I probably inherited uh, some of her fears and foibles. Um, She was just scared of everything, really. Disaster was everywhere. She was scared about me going to Dublin in case I get stabbed. Um, she didn't like me leaving Cork. She didn't like me leaving the house, really. I think all these things are undiagnosed because we didn't use these terms at the time. You know, nobody was using any mental health terms. But I suppose looking back on it, she was certainly agoraphobic. Uh, she didn't really leave the house for maybe the last 10, 15 years of her life much at all. Um, she, got, she had OCD, so she'd be, you know, 
checking the cooker and she'd touch all the knobs a certain number of times, whatever. And uh, because we didn't have the lingo, we used to just drive my father crazy and we, we used to just laugh. You know what I mean? So that was the, there, was, there wasn't the mutual caring around mental health in the house. And when I told her that I felt like my head was going to explode one time when I was eight, which looking back and it was a panic attack, she just laughed. <laughs> we just laughed at each other. And, and I'm not making light of it. It's just that, you know, this whole thing is funny as well as tragic. And, and that's the nature. That's the, the kind of tableau of, of addiction and mental health. Because the alcoholism is a symptom, isn't it, of the underlying anxiety and mental health issues that you've lived with? Yeah. The best way, I suppose, is uh, to describe it is that like the alcoholism, it only really kicks off uh, when you stop drinking. You know, so which is a thing is saying that to me. So, like the alcoholism, I suppose, is the mental, physical, and spiritual illness. Like that's the illness. Uh, when you stop drinking, you've taken away your anaesthetic, which works really well to treat that illness, and then you're left with yourself. This, by the way, now is my perspective. I'm not speaking for any group or whatever, but certainly my experience was now the drink is taken away, and it's assumed by society that that's where you heal. That's only the beginning. That's what I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, when you give up the use of alcohol, which was a form of medication for you, the reasons why you did drink, the things you tried to escape from, are they still there? And then if they're there, how do you deal with them without the alcohol? That's the nature of recovery. That's the million dollar question. So I realised that I was, as I say, scared from the time that I was a kid. There was always anxiety. And then you start drinking not only does it kind of equalise the anxiety, but it takes you on to a new level altogether where you're just, you know, the best, like you're the greatest man in Cork ever. And then the drinking stops working, which is terrifying because it's the thing you've always used. And then you're left with yourself. And I suppose I had to then get to the root uh, of why I was drinking in the first place. And other alcoholics were a huge help in helping me to stop drinking and to spiritually heal as well, I should say. But I did end up digging deeper and doing psychotherapy and CBT was also very useful for me to try and get to the reason why I was anxious in the first place and what I was running away from my whole life. And did you get there? I feel I did get there, yeah. And it it didn't turn out to be, it was because one particular incident happened one day. I felt like at the very root of it was that I was uh, scared of being scared. Like it was fear of fear itself. You know, and, and I think looking back at it, my mother as well, she'd almost have fear in her mind and in her heart. And then she would create fictitious, distorted narratives to then fit that mould. Do you get scared or fearful now? I do, of course. And it's like, <coughs> it's not, um, hopefully this is something that comes across in the book because I was overworking last year and I got myself into a, an awful kind of state in my head. Again, it was becoming, I was trying to be a successor. I was trying to, I mean, old ideas for me would be uh, that I'm not good enough. So I tried to do like 40 million projects and get people to pat me on the back and say that was well written or that was a good joke or that's a great sketch. And all that stuff is fine unless it becomes a thing that defines who you are as a human being, uh, which started to happen a lot last year. So I suppose... And how do you cope with that then? Like you go back to basics, I suppose. Like the old ideas are, I need to prove to everyone that I'm, I'm okay and that I am good enough. And like you just try and intercept that by kind of going like I'm here, I'm in recovery, I'm not hurting people anymore, I am good enough. Hopefully the book gets that across that this is not a linear thing. And then like, you know, you go through the doors of like stars and the rise and you come out and I'm non-alcoholic anymore. Like, yeah, you because know. you know, when people you hear people lapsing 
returning to drink. I mean, would you have ever come close to that? The desire to drink was was lifted from me quite quick when I gave recovery a proper go. Like I've start, I've like reached out to other alcoholics when I was like in my early twenties because, as I say, I knew I had an issue very early on. But for me, anyway. I got to the point where I was very clear to me, there was no epiphany, there was no rationalising. It was like, if I keep doing this, I'm going to die. And I really didn't want to die. I really, really wanted to be alive. I just wanted the pain in my head to stop. Um, So that's why I threw myself into recovery. But there was no rational decision around it, if you know what I mean. So I've never felt tempted to drink again because at that moment I realised whatever it is is wrong with me, drink is no longer fixing it. Okay, but... You also mentioned earlier, and it comes across in the book, the great times that you had drinking. So yeah. you don't miss that, the fun that you actually had. It's like having an ex who uh, you still, you know, you'll still occasionally think about them. You think, well, that was an amazing time that we had. But there's no way you'd call her now at this stage. <laughs> like, you know, it just wouldn't be the done thing. Your wife would be upset about it. Like it's an ex-lover that was every, was your whole world for a long period. But it's done. It has to be done. She's going to kill you. There's one really striking story and it's highlighted in the blurb to the book but I think it is worth examining (laughs) about how, and I think you probably know where I'm going in this, with your young daughter being in an early house, looking out the window, you're pissed. You see her with her mother heading off doing Christmas shopping and instead of sobering up and joining them, you sort of just go back to drinking. Yeah. And I suppose, I hope like anyone listening, will anyone who has a drink problem probably will identify but for people who don't, that for me is a great representation of the mental illness that is alcoholism because like I'm obsessed with my daughter, like there's nothing I wouldn't do for her now and since I stopped drinking, there's been no moments where I'm looking out a window and I don't go to her. But back then, you're so consumed with yourself and that's it, like it's a very selfish, it's a very lonely, selfish road like addiction. But you're so wrapped up in yourself and as far as I was concerned that day, you know, I've got to treat whatever's wrong with me and the points are working right now. So if I go out there and try and sober up, I don't know what kind of state my head's going to be in. But there was a moment in that where I thought to myself, okay, if this is what it has reduced me to, it's over. Like, this is over. I probably didn't stop that day. In fact, I probably didn't stop that year. Um, I'm eight and a half years sober now. And I should say as well on that, like I'm eight and a half years not drinking, actually, is a better way of putting it. Because the first year afterwards, you're way worse. I was a lunatic for the first year. It's like somebody's, ta- you know, all the cans are gone in the fridge. Like you're the last person left at the party and the music has been turned off. And you're sitting in the living room going, I'm insane. I don't like the feeling in my head at all. So I'm eight and a half years not drinking. And I would, I would say I'm a few years on and off in a good, spiritual, mentally strong place. And is the work better? Because as a comedian, some people justify their behaviour on the basis that the drink makes them funnier. Like, definitely funny things happen to you. Like, I'm not getting up to as many escapades sober, that's for sure. Like, I'm not, like, losing my wallet and kind of walking home pantsless and regal, like, anymore. I'm not doing those kind of things. But, like, there's most of those things are tragic as well. You know what I mean? They're, they're, there might be funny where you're with lads and we're all laughing together. But, but to answer your question, I think that's another myth that's out there, the Brendan Bean effect, which is, you know, you're the mad drinking or drugging artist and you're creating great work. I can't speak for Brendan Bean. I'm a massive fan of his as an artist. I don't know that he did do all his work drunk. I don't think he probably did. Like, uh, for me anyway, I couldn't really get to the end of, of projects. And it's heartbreaking because I felt I had stuff to say or I had stuff to contribute. You get halfway through a project, then you go missing for two or three days. You lose contact with the person you're working with or you're in bed depressed for three or four days. And that was kind of my 20s and early 30s, which is 
Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a regret. Like I try not I was to just have asking, was it regret now at this stage, or is it also in some respects at least you've got it worked out, you got it sorted, yeah. and you had your midlife and the rest of your life to look forward to yes. because you got it sorted early. Yeah, I do, to be honest, yeah, I don't really have regrets. It's a pity that I wasted. I wasted a lot of great opportunities, as as I, I'm sure you read in the book, but. Um, no, ultimately, it's not something that keeps me up at night. I've got good acceptance of where I am right now. And definitely, I wrote a book there, I think, that there's no way I would have had that kind of depth of understanding of what happened to me. And, you know, there's a friend of mine that I used to drink and drug with. And uh, he used to always say, you know, one of the good things about what we do here is that you learn an awful lot about your own mind. And I know exactly what he means. You know, you, I, I now have a sense of how far I can push myself before I go nuts again. A portrait of the piss artist as a young man, Ty Hickey. Great having you here as well. You're, you go on. What yeah, I was going to quickly plug my tour. I'll be. I'll get a rap in the knuckles. I'm also doing a tour at the moment called the Marxist Terrorist Supporting Scumbag Tour. That name was gifted by a troll of mine on Twitter. I'm in Belfast next week. Then the Liberty Hall on the 26th of September and the Cork Opera House on the 28th of September. All details on tykickey.com. Good luck, Tyke. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Thanks, buddy. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.